I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. At Locomotion Shieldon this April and May, early railway historian Dr. Michael Bailey and colleagues will be delving into the history of a mysterious unnamed engine. Thought to be the world's first replica locomotive dating from 1855, the mystery engine has been referred to as the Hetton engine after the colliery in County Durham where it spent its operational life. This exciting research project aims to reveal further secrets about the world's very oldest steam engines. Locomotion Shieldon is part of the Science Museum Group and is home to more than 70 rail vehicles from the National Collection. For more information about this project, our museum and our exciting programme of events, visit locomotion.org.uk. We're very privileged today to have with us uh, Dr. Michael Bailey, who is an expert in early locomotives, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about Rocket. Hello, Dr. Bailey. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Could you tell us a bit more about George Stevenson and um, how he's, what his background was, please? George Stevenson was uh, born and brought up in the Northumberland coalfield. His father worked in the coalfield, and it was only natural that his son George would join him there. He very quickly became very proficient in steam engines and when he made uh, substantial savings to his employer uh, with one of the steam engines that was getting, getting difficult, uh, then uh, of course he came to notice and therefore he was given more responsibility at the Westmoor Colliery in Killingworth. Then when the opportunity came, um, where it was noted that at the Wylam Colliery just to the west uh, of, of, uh, uh, of Killingworth, it was noted that they were using steam locomotives, trial steam locomotives, Puffing Billy and Wylam Dilly. He was, George Stevenson was asked by the proprietors, can we at Killingworth use a steam locomotive? And George Stevenson said, yes, let me build a, a trial steam locomotive, which he did. And it was, first came onto the rails in the summer of 1814. It was named Blucher after the Field Marshal Luca of the Prussian Army, to do with the battles against Napoleon, of course. It was named that because, although it was it, Stevenson's first attempt, it worked hard and it did not give up, which is the symbol, if you like, of the Field Marshal. It worked, not terribly well, but it did the job, and it demonstrated to the proprietors of the colliery that it would be worth making some other more powerful steam locomotives to haul the coals from the Westmoor Colliery all the way down to the Tyne for shipment to London and elsewhere. So soon after that, the following year, 
a patent was taken out by George Stevenson and William Dodds, the, um, the viewer, the engineer of uh, uh, Killingworth Colliery, for improvements to the steam locomotive. And the loco was built shortly afterwards, the first of the principal locos uh, on the Killingworth line. And thereafter, further improvements were made, uh, including a locomotive built in 1816 that survives. It survives up in the Stevenson Railway Museum on North Tyneside, near to the, the old Killingworth Wagonway, uh, and that was uh, Killingworth Billy, uh, much rebuilt, but it survives in that museum. And from then on, of course, George Stevenson carried out further improvements to the locos on the Killingworth line, uh, get, each one getting slightly larger, uh, until in 1821 he made uh, quite a large locomotive that demonstrated only too well the, how, how good steam locos were at the job of moving coal uh, down to the time. And this obviously led to Stevenson designing Rocket for the, the trials of the Rainhill and the London, Liverpool Manchester Railway. Well, yes, we've got a few stages to go yes. through, of course. Oh, yes. the, the Hetton Railway, the Stockton and Darlington yes. Railway yes. and so on. But George Stevenson, uh, his career accelerated when, first of all, he was asked to uh, build the Hetton Railway, then the uh, Stockton and Darlington and subsequently the Liverpool and Manchester. Uh, but when the Liverpool of Manchester was being built, he was the engineer in charge, and so he was his time was fully taken up uh, supervising the, the various works on the, along the line. So who was to improve the locomotive from the slow five miles an hour coal hauling locomotives that he had in the northeast? Who was to improve the locomotive to become a mainline locomotive, well, the first of a fleet of mainline locomotives that could run for over 30 miles between Manchester and Liverpool and, and, and back? Uh, he, he fell back on his son, Robert Stevenson. Now, Robert Stevenson, uh, by this time, we're talking now about 1828, when he returned uh, from his trip to South America. Uh, he came back and as George Stevenson gave him the task, first of all, of taking over other railways that uh, George Stevenson was responsible for, the Canterbury and Whitstable and the Leicester and Swannington and others, and uh, it was also left to Robert Stevenson to develop the steam locomotive beyond what George Stevenson had already developed. Uh, Robert's approach was quite different from that of his father because his father uh, approached steam locomotives empirically. If it worked, do it again but make it bigger. What Robert Stevenson realised was that you need, needed to uh, examine the, each of the components of the steam locomotive and see where improvements could be made, principally to make more steam. And as a result of all the work that he carried out, and a suggestion incidentally by the uh, secretary of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, Henry Booth, why don't you have a series of multiple tubes in the boiler surrounded by the water creating a lot more steam than just one flue tube which had hitherto been the case and so that was the major change that um, ensured that rocket uh, performed so well at the rainhill trials other ones of course the, the, the cylinders and the wheels and so on but he managed to make a locomotive that was light in frame it fulfilled the requirements of the tr rainhill trials uh, and at the same time, it didn't run out of steam, as simple as that. And so it uh, performed extremely well, much, much better than the other competitors at the trials. What sets Rocket apart 
to its predecessors. Rocket was a giant step forward with regard to steam generation. The introduction of a multi-tubular boiler uh, created so much more steam than the old single uh, flue boilers of the Killingworth engines and others that uh, followed on the Stockton and Darlington. Uh, it generated so much more steam it meant that it was possible for the, for the locomotive to steam all the way between Manchester and Liverpool with reliability. You can't obviously introduce a service unless you've got reliable motive power and that's what Rocket provided. Also it was much lighter than the old colliery engines working at Killingworth and on the Stockton and Darlington uh, and consequently uh, by keeping the weight down it meant that the locomotive uh, could perform over the lightweight track of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway uh, quite satisfactorily. But the previous locomotives to this that were made by the Stevenson Company, uh, they actually were part of a what today we would call a research and development programme. We can't take Rocket in isolation. When Robert Stevenson began his work at the beginning of 1828, then he introduced a series of improvements on a, a number of uh, prototype locomotives which were made available to customers of the Robert Stevenson factory in Newcastle and each one introduced improvements all of these improvements were incorporated in Rocket uh, but of course the, 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 the development work did not stop there it was a bit like your mobile phone when you get your mobile phone you just bought it at the shop you get it home it's out of date straight away such was the rate of improvements Rocket was old technology by the time the railway was open in September of 1830. And so what we see now is in fact not Rocket as it was in 1829, but Rocket as it was rebuilt over several occasions through its short working career. And so it would be possible to point out some of those improvements that were made uh, after the Rainhill Trials. One of the things that always fascinates me about uh, George Stevenson and Robert Stevenson is that, that today when uh, engineering pieces are designed, there's a lot of computer technology goes into it. How did they do the calculations and how did they work out whether a piece of metal was going to be sufficient enough to take the pressure that he was going to be under, for example? Yes, or, or was it trial and error? <laughs> well, there was an element of trial and error. But the craftsman who made Rocket, as indeed all the other locomotives up in uh, Newcastle, uh, they knew what they were doing. They started their careers in the time of the millwrights. In other words, the millwrights did all the calculations. Uh, the tradesmen, each tradesman made the component that they knew best. The wheelwrights made the wheels, the boiler smiths made the boilers, uh, and so on. The fitters made the other components. But as time progressed, of course, that wasn't sufficient because improvements meant you needed to have larger locomotives, more powerful locomotives, and yet you had to arrange them in such a way that they fitted uh, between four, <coughs> four wheels or very soon afterwards six wheels. What Robert Stevenson did was to introduce a draftsman. Now, nothing new in draftsmen, but draftsmen responsible for sorting out the arrangement of the locomotives to incorporate all of these improvements uh, that they were incorporating. Uh, and that um, draftsman, George Phipps was his name, uh, played an important part in the layout, not only of uh, Rocket, but all of the subsequent locomotives. That programme continued uh, until the opening of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, and beyond, of course. But it's an extraordinary point to reflect on. 
is that Robert Stevenson was given the task by his father to create a locomotive that would be, provide reliable motive power for the Liverpool and Manchester Railway when it opened. Robert Stevenson took the locomotive as we see it, were, were, it was seen on the colliery lines and on the Stockton and Darlington, a slow, lumbering locomotive to rocket and onto planet, that's when the, the, the real programme finished, onto planet and it all took just 33 months and that was an extraordinary uh, progression uh, that uh, it, it, is, it has to be one of the fastest improvements in mechanical engineering the world's ever seen. That's just absolutely amazing. When you look at how long it takes to introduce and design and build a new train today, that is actually quite a remarkable achievement. It's absolutely. Michael, tell me about uh, Rocket's career and what uh, you discovered during the archaeological exploration of the locomotive. The project that we undertook 20 years ago now was part archival and part uh, archaeological. It's only by combining those two programmes together could we understand what it was we were actually looking at. Rocket was accident prone. We know about its uh, uh, accident to Paul William Huskinson at, uh, on the opening day of the Liverpool and Manchester line, where Huskinson, of course, was run over and sadly killed. But only six weeks later, after the opening of the line, Rocket had another accident. And on this occasion, it was propelling a train of ballast wagons uh, along the line from Shatmos back here to uh, Ma Manchester. Uh, and suddenly an axle broke uh, the ac the, the, uh, ten on the tender tender collapsed in a heap, the engine was derailed and damaged, but even more sadly is that there was a young lad on board who just thumbed a lift. He was obviously an early railway enthusiast, thumbed a lift, he was catapulted from uh, the tender, he was run over and he was killed. That was just within six weeks of, uh, of, of the opening. There were other accidents as well, uh, a nasty one in um, Olive Mount Cutting uh, in uh, 1831. Now, I, when these accidents happened, the uh, uh, the railway took the locomotive back to Liverpool, to Edge Hill, where they had a small workshop, uh, to make repairs. In fact, they had to call in uh, contractors to undertake some of these repairs. But such had been the speed of the uh, developments in locomotive technology, as demonstrated on the later locos, that they decided to retrofit Rocket with some of these improvements. Uh, and these we can see on the locomotive uh, today. One of the principal ones was that Rocket initially primed very badly. That is because the water level was kept as high as possible because the firebox, which was a separate box from the boiler, firebox was at, in risk of exposure and obviously of its damage, and therefore they kept the water high, which meant it primed badly. So they took the opportunity of putting on one of the improvements that we first saw on Invicta, on the Canterbury and Whitstable and that is it has a steam riser inside a dome uh, above the boiler and they said right if we were to do that have a steam riser then it would be possible to raise the water level and reduce the risk uh, to the top of the firebox and that's what they took advantage of after that first accident so they put a dome on uh, and they put in a, 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 a steam feed pipe thereafter which was much drier and reduced the uh, incidence of uh, priming uh, uh, and the evidence is there every hole that you can see on the side of the boiler or on the side of the frame that there's a hole has a reason for being there 
And that's what we had to do in our archaeological survey, was to identify what each hole represented and when it was put on. Another example, too, is that rocket was needed uh, to uh, buffer up to vehicles uh, at its front end, not just its uh, tender end. And so they took advantage uh, of putting on a, a buffer beam. But this was put on after the Olive Mount accident. Now the Olive Mount accident, it was serious because one of the wheels failed uh, and the, the locomotive was badly damaged, but it was taken back, new wheels were made, so we know that these wheels date from 1831, and also evidence is here. If I could just point it out to you, you can see the main longitudinal frame member has a crack in it. And that is because initially, it was in that accident, it was bent underneath. Uh, they, they, they cold uh, straightened it, and in so doing, it cracked. And so they put on uh, a supplementary frame. You can see the bar on above the main frame bar, uh, and also a, a diagonal cross member to give it much more strength when they put the buffer beam on. Since then, it's had further accidents and heavy shunts. And one of the heavy shunts, you can see the effect now, you can see that that front beam is bent. That's even the, the, the strengthening beam is bent, so it's been a, a subsequent um, uh, 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 collision. And the buffer beam itself is correspondingly bent. So there's lots and lots of clues like that, which pan out with all of the archival work that we did to understand when these accidents happened, why they happened, uh, and what they did. And of course, it wasn't just on the Liverpool and Manchester line, <clears throat> it was also when Rocket was sold second-hand uh, to the Naworth collieries up in Cumbria, or Cumberland, uh, owned by the Earl of Carlisle. Uh, there it moved a, a, an awful lot of coal during its short career there, uh, from 1836 to 1840. Uh, and when it did so, it had under-buffers, uh, because the vehicles used on the Naworth colliery were lower dumb buffers. Uh, and so they were fitted. There is evidence still there uh, of these dumb buffers and the way they were fitted uh, on that diagonal uh, frame there. So every little hole tells a story, and that's what we teased out during the course of the, of the, of the project. What other developments were undertaken with the locomotive before it was finally withdrawn from service? Well, the interesting one is that it was actually withdrawn from service quite early on because it was there's a limit to how much you can retrofit improvements. And by the time you got to 1833, you were into patentee locomotives, which were so much stronger and, and uh, 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 faster than, than Rocket. They withdrew it from service. They then used it as a, um, as a test bed. Lord Dundonald, who uh, was something of an inventor, um, invented a rotary steam engine. By rotary, he had uh, the engine surrounding the axle and introduced steam to drive uh, propellers around the housing of there to create the rotary motion. Uh, and thus, he thought, have a much more efficient form of motive power than the reciprocating motion that uh, uh, we're used to seeing on rocket. That wasn't successful. Uh, but nevertheless, it meant that uh, Rocket was still there, still available for use. Uh, Lord Dundonald was thanked them very profusely, but it wasn't pursued. Um, but after that, 1836, then uh, Rocket was sold second-hand to the Earl of Carlisle, 
uh, and it went up to, uh, to, to uh, finish its days uh, on the Naworth Colliery Line. So in reality it had a very short career then? A very short career indeed. It, it was taken out of service finally in 1840, so it had a maximum life of just 11 years. Could you actually uh, explain some of the work you undertook during the archaeological exploration, please? Yes, by all means. This was the fourth archaeological work that uh, we had done on a locomotive, we being my colleague John Glitherow uh, and myself. Um, this was a request by the National Railway Museum when Rocket was up in York in 1999 during rebuilding work in South Kensington. And so it gave us a golden opportunity uh, to examine the locomotive in more detail than had been possible on previous uh, occasions. But coupled with that, it was important to undertake an awful lot of archival work to try and tease out the story of, uh, uh, of Rocket as written down anywhere in notes, in diaries, in newspaper reports and, and so forth. So the, the, those two aspects of the study were taken together. Uh, and so as we went over the locomotive uh, during the course of 1999, uh, we came to understand exactly what had happened to Rocket, component by component, uh, and the order in which those changes had been made as a result of all the many accidents that it had had uh, and the changes that uh, had been correspondingly made uh, we began to build up this picture of Rocket and its life during its, its working life um, and uh, could answer some of the obvious questions. I mean, for example, it was written down in a letter to, uh, by Robert Stevenson that when the firebox, which was made in Liverpool by the uh, men who actually copper-bottomed ship, shipping um, uh, vessels, uh, when they made it, they hadn't got the locomotive with them, they just made a box, shipped it to Newcastle, and when the men received the box and put it onto the frame, it, it wasn't quite square, it was actually out a bit. And so it, we've always known that because that letter has been in history books and so on over the years, not quite square built. But only when John and I were able to examine the frame, we could see the pattern of holes of how the firebox had sat. Uh, when it was first made. Sadly, the firebox itself is, is gone now. Uh, all of the non uh, sorry, all of the uh, non-ferrous components were withdrawn following its withdrawal from service in 1840. So we're only left with the skeletal remains. But th those clues of the holes and where the, the, the firebox sat is just one example of the detail that you can tease out of the uh, examination, physical examination, uh, during a project such as ours. So it's, it's almost forensic in its... Yes, it is. In, it's, in it's, it's a forensic uh, archaeological study. Yeah, yeah. And since then, we've gone on to do uh, two more uh, studies, um, just concluding just recently with Killingworth Billy up in, um, uh, on, on Tyneside. And there's one or two others in the pipeline. Uh, Michael, this is a replica of novelty, which I understand contains parts of the original locomotive. Could you uh, enlighten us a bit more about the novelty? Yes, indeed. This uh, replica was made by the Science Museum back in uh, 1929 because they had uh, inherited some of the original components of the original novelty locomotive um, and they thought it would be better 
portrayed on, by, by creating this replica. And so certainly one of the cylinders and some of the other gear, including the wheels incidentally, uh, they have survived uh, and they have been put on. So what we're looking at is the original wheels and one at least of the original cylinders. I should say that the other cylinder also survives uh, over in Rainhill Library, uh, which provides further opportunity to, to see the uh, locomotive. But obviously the, the boiler is completely uh, a replica representation uh, rather than uh, any original component. I mean, compared to looking at rocket, the cylinders on this locomotive look quite small. Um, yeah, the whole thing looks so very different uh, from, from rocket. Actually, it was the favourite uh, of the huge crowds that turned out. is because it was uh, rather more familiar in shape. It's very similar to fire engines that Braithwaite used to make. Um, they, they, they were horse-drawn, but the fire was there, the, so the, the, the boiler was there to create steam for the hoses to uh, yes. put out uh, fires. Yes, you can see and that familiarity. Exactly, yes, so yes. because it was so familiar, everyone said that must be the one uh, that, that we want to win. Uh, in, in practice, it's a, so very different uh, from Rocket that it, did not, uh, it could not keep up the volume of steam that was required uh, for the full distance between Manchester and Liverpool. It, was, it worked on its own. It, it, it performed extremely well at Rainhill without being under load. But under load and for long distance, uh, it just wasn't man enough for the, for, for the job. Um, and, and the coal would have been in these baskets? That's right, yeah. yes. The coal yeah. was simply loaded on in baskets onto the uh, main frame there. The fireman uh, stood uh, right alongside the boiler, obviously. There was a little hatch at the top. You fed the coke into the top there, shut that, and then the coke would fall down into the fire. There is a major hazard with coke which we found out when we undertook a televised uh, re-inaction re, uh, of the Rainhill trials back uh, in 2003, it was broadcast, uh, the part of the BBC's Horizon programme. And what we found is that the firemen on the replica, uh, the other replica locomotive, which is now in, back in uh, Sweden, um, the firemen suffered from carbon monoxide poisoning because the, as you put the coke in, the some of the carbon monoxide would escape yes. and he started to feel unwell. And that's a hazard that, the sort of thing you only learn through replication, hmm. uh, that you, you, you don't, this wasn't written down in any, any of the uh, history books. Uh, so that was interesting. The boiler itself is an unusual uh, design. First of all, uh, the, 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 the fire grate is, is you know, quite a, a long way down, as it were, just at the base of the, of the um, vertical tube, but is also there is a horizontal component uh, and the flue gases had to pass all the way through the horizontal component uh, before um, it, the, the, um, uh, it, yeah, the, the steam was allowed into the cylinder. Uh, it was very difficult to maintain. It would have been a, a nightmare uh, for the maintenance teams on the Liverpool and Manchester to have gone with a, a model of this design. So much easier on, on Rocket. Now we've looked at Rocket and novelty, let's look at Planet, which was the sort of the end stage of early locomotive development, shall we? So here we are at Planet, which really represented an end stage in early locomotive development. Could you explain to us some of the adaptations that Planet's got that the early locomotives wouldn't have had? Certainly. Uh, if we start with, Robert, with George Stevenson's 
locomotives that are used on the um, Killingworth line, the Hetton line, and also the Stockton and Darlington. They were very simple uh, cylindrical boilers with a single flue, uh, a cylinder set into the top. They were slow. They worked, but they were slow and they were uh, cumbersome, I think is the right word. Robert Stevenson was given this task by his father to develop the steam locomotives suitable for fleet operation on the new Liverpool to Manchester line. And in just 33 months after he was given that task at the beginning of uh, 1828, uh, uh, he went through a series of prototypes, including, of course, rockets, as we've just seen, uh, and then concluded the development program with Planet. Planet marks the culmination of the development work. Thereafter, the locomotives just got bigger uh, and more powerful, creating more steam and so on. So the essential components of the, uh, the locomotive, which we came to recognize in any steam locomotive that was built subsequently, is a separate firebox made integrally with the boiler barrel, the boiler with multiple tubes in it, a smoke box which provides a vacuum chamber uh, which means that the, when this exhaust uh, is ejected through the chamber and up the chimney it creates a draw on the fire uh, which is such an important part of the front end design of a steam locomotive. The cylinders are inside the frame uh, therefore, it's much more stable than the outside cylinders of, the, uh, uh, of, of Rocket and, and the other early locos. Uh, the frame is now a sandwich frame made of uh, oak or elm, plated on either side by wrought iron, which makes it a very stiff and very robust uh, frame. And so the whole locomotive can generate plenty of steam. It can, make, it can achieve speeds in excess of 30 miles an hour, although... In, in fleet service, 25 to 30 was, was usual, uh, and it could make enough steam to get itself from Manchester here all the way through to Liverpool. Uh, and so it was a very successful locomotive. Not only did, did the first fleet of uh, planets uh, operate the uh, starting services on the Liverpool and Manchester line, but further examples were built for subsequent railways in this country, in Europe and in North America. And so began the great uh, locomotive building industry that this country became so famous for in the 19th century. So this was effectively like a, an early standard design that, that people adapted to for their particular countries and railways. That's right, yes, yes. It, it, the the um, axle loading of the uh, locomotives was uh, not too great to break the, the rails, so you could uh, uh, guarantee that some of the railways uh, in, you know, that were first built had lightweight rails uh, and would otherwise you know, break the track. Um, but very quickly, of course, uh, the, the requirement for more speed and for greater load hauling capability meant that uh, you needed to extend the locomotive, so they put on a third axle at the rear with a longer boiler and a larger firebox, the Payton-T engines, uh, which then took the uh, railway development forward through the 1830s. Lovely, thank you, Mike.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.